was once I understood, remember I came from the medical world, once I understood that self-funded employers were really self-funded, meaning they were handling their own risk, you know, it just dawned on me that every company that was self-funded and, and offering healthcare benefits was essentially a small health insurance company. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits. Welcome back to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and today's uh, interview is with Bob Galvin, uh, Dr. Bob Galvin. He was an internist, uh, generally, that graduated from, from Penn Med School. Uh, later became the executive director of services and chief medical officer for GE. And in 2010, he transitioned over to Blackstone, where he was the CEO of Equity Healthcare for Blackstone, working with their portfolio of companies, as well as uh, the chief medical officer. He's also the father of triplets. So excited to dive into his experiences and advice. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lee. Nice to be oh. here. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of hopping in one one question that's top of mind is how do you how do you think that that you approach healthcare in some ways that might be differentiated for how you know a benefits leader at a large employer might approach it well you know i mean obviously part of it uh is that i'm a physician and so when i was at GE, we had a whole bunch of uh, clinics and we had a lot of physicians and nurses who worked for g at the time very different era. So I bring that to it. But I think more than anything, uh, the kind of theme I was able to latch on to was once I understood, remember, I came from the medical world. Once I understood that self-funded employers were really self-funded, meaning they were handling their own risk, you know, it just dawned on me that every company that was self-funded and, and offering healthcare benefits was essentially a small health insurance company. Right. Um, so when I would approach the HR leader, and for a time I reported into finance and HR at the same time, it was always through the lens of, do you know that although at GE, we're making jet engines in one division and we're making refrigerators in another division, we're also running a multi-billion dollar health insurance company that happens mm. to be for our employees and families. And it was a way, I think, to get the conversation away from just as just part of compensation we're talking about here, which is, I think, how right. traditional companies look at healthcare benefits to basically say, there's another angle to this, and it might make us think differently about the programs that we, uh, we adopt. Everyone, now just a quick word from today's sponsor. Lemonade for 50 cents for a good cause. This situation seems terrible, right? Well, what if I told you it actually happened in the United States in 2021? These are the families of people who work for companies just like yours. Give your employees 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. great point. If uh, you wouldn't argue that because you have a marketing expense, you're a marketing firm, because it really you're, that's not kind of a core area, you're not behaving like a, you know, a marketing firm in the space. Or with, um, you know, if you're running your supply chain, you're not necessarily a manufacturer of those services, or because you employ attorneys, you're not a law firm. But 
in every fundamental meaningful way, you are absolutely running an insurance company. I mean, well, and it, are... it's due to the risk, Lee. I mean, the difference yeah. is in those other cases, there are your kind of employees and you manage how many of them you have and don't have. This is risk and this is mm -hmm. everything and it's families. And that was the other thing, the other big, it shouldn't have been an aha, but it seemed to be an aha over and over again. Mm -hmm to both the finance team and the HR teams where most of the costs are not from employees, it's from their families. So right. this is much more like a business. We can't just say, let's limit travel and think we can control these expenses. It was a much different mindset and approach uh, when you realize what you really had there with the self-funding. Could you explain how benefits leaders in their role are in a position to impact not just the health and longevity and, and sort of performance for their own employees, but how the actions within that role have the potential to impact well beyond the walls of the organization. Yeah. And so, well, I think that it's a great point and it just has to do with the unique and somewhat I don't know if bizarre is the right word, but it's certainly the structure of our healthcare system goes kind of beyond unique. You know, no right. one would construct a system like this except the United States, where it actually, there are reasons why it's existed this long. And so right. when you realize that this structure, and I believe it is here to stay, is what it is, 160 or 170 million people are insured and paid, their healthcare uh, uh, benefits are paid for through employers. That's three times the size of Medicare. That's twice the size of Medicaid. And so add uh, the VA and other programs in, it's still by far the most prevalent payer. And about 100, 110 million of those are self-funded. So just structurally, when you think about what role, what is it that employers are doing here and, and what role are they playing collectively, they're a really important player in the healthcare system and where they decide to put their money, which comes from the structure of their benefits, is gonna impact that system. The expectations yeah. it has over its intermediaries, the health insurance companies and other outsourced vendors, which then kind of reflect onto the providers, the hospitals, the doctors, et cetera, uh, is really important. And so to me, you're making decisions individually, which you have to, it's your own kind of employee base. I think that's one of the beauties of the system, which has created to its longevity is you really can customize it to your employees rather than a national system. But the reverberations go much further. If you decide you want to kind of, uh, this is 15 years ago when they started to come in these high deductible plans, you wanted to go down a mm -hmm. consumerism pathway Right. You know, you were sending a strong message, again, to the uh, health, health plans and the providers mm -hmm. beyond them about how money was going to flow. And mm -hmm. I think employers have, unfortunately, massively underperformed uh, mm -hmm. in this area. I have my own thoughts about why. Uh, yeah. But they have, they impact it, whether they think about impacting it in a unified way, you know, and positively, or whether it just happens by their own individual decisions, it impacts the flow of the system uh, in a massive way. That's a great point. And I think the underperformance a lot of times, I think, uh, is driven by the number of intermediaries and others in the system. Now, for many people with whom I speak, there's not a lot of knowledge about how 
all the intermediaries, basically everyone has an incentive that is misaligned with the employers. Could you maybe break down a little bit about how the different major intermediary stakeholders are misaligned uh, against employers to keep the system how it is today? Yeah, you know, it's one of the things it dawned on me when I was in a medical practice before I made mm -hmm. the change um, over to the employer side is just how mismatched things were. I think I can most simply say it by one person's savings is another person's cost. Right. Uh, and so if you're an employer and you are focused on affordability and you are focused on kind of high quality and value and getting the best from your buck, you might want to spend less. And if you spend less, you're going to be competing with insurers, you know, about how much you want to pay them. They want you to pay them more and with providers, you know, who want to do services and get paid for them. Wow. When people kind of, I guess when approaching the system, one desire that a lot of people have is, Hey, well, if I can, if I can adjust the way I, I do healthcare, can I realign some of these incentives? Have you experimented or seen practices like that, that, that have worked or maybe some work and some don't, but any thoughts on how people might be able to start realigning some of those incentives? Yeah. And look, that's the Holy grail here because you can't have misaligned incentives and expect to make progress. You're just basically you know, throwing the pizza back and forth. You know, right. one year I get a low fee and then the doctors don't get as much money and then they'll find some new tests. And so basically everyone's going to manage to their income expectations. And in my sense, the employers, you know, have always been kind of like the shock absorber in the system. Whenever I mm. hear that something's going to happen in the system, that's going to drive up costs, new drug, <clears throat> more consolidation among hospitals, consolidation among health plans my initial thought is, well, I know where that funding is going to come from and it's going to come from employers. And of course it doesn't come from employers. It comes from employees and, mm -hmm. and their families. So we are the great, you know, shock absorber as this system just inexorably increases and increases, which it'll start to do again now that the pandemic uh, is in the phase that it's in. So you, if you don't align the incentives, you're just going to get a bunch of really smart focused, energetic people that are driving, you know, responding to their own incentives, and you're just going to go trade it back and forth. So mm. the problem is we haven't done a great job uh, at aligning our incentives. Um, I don't know any way in the end to do it other than some kind of capitated or prepayment model. Right. I just, I've tried everything. I really have tried everything. I have tried, you know, because I've been around a long time. So, I mean, it was really, we tried to give away things for free to employees thinking that maybe that's why they didn't take their medications. That really didn't mm -hmm. work very well. Then I tried high deductible plans thinking, well, my, our employees would really become consumers of healthcare if they had oh, to right. spend their own money, et cetera. And um, that kind of had marginal, but not great effect. We tried to oh, just this was in the 90s when I first started doing this. It was an era where you would just really be aggressive with your suppliers. We would get into these um, lockdown, drag out fights with our health plans 
about over how much ASO fee that we were going to pay them and how much we were going to put at risk and how much we were going to expect and audit, you know, inspect and audit them. And in the end, we did a study after five or six years of this and found out that one way or another, they managed to get their money back again, targeting their incomes. And then we went to the providers mm. and we util utilization reviewed them and prior off them and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And again, all of it, you know, look, I suspect most of this stuff has short term impact. Mm -hmm. uh, but in time, people are too smart. Organizations are too savvy uh, and they revert to their natural order, which is I am incentivized and I'm going to follow those incentives. So if you don't align incentives, I think you are at kidding yourself that you have anything more than a short term benefit. And that is after 30 years of mm. massive number of hours and all nighters. Uh, mm. and we, look, we used to do these uh, procurement events with our health insurers when I was a G. This is a very 90s kind of thing. And early aughts, we, we would call them thrillers, you know, after the old boxing match, the thriller. Yeah, the thriller vanilla. Put them in separate rooms and we would go from kind of conference room to conference room and we would go from bid to bid and say, well, you know, and they would know their competitors and they would be at some lousy motel somewhere. And we would say, well, we know your competitors are, you know, you know they're in that other room and, you know, we really aren't ready to make a deal yet. And so we would be able to extract plenty of discounts in ASO fees. And then wow. you would kind of wake up and go, wait a minute, ASO fees are about 10% of the overall cost. I just yeah. drove them down. I'm a hero. 30%. Right. That's a 3% savings that oh. basically they're going to figure out some way to get back somehow. Right. And so I have, you know, really tried it all. Uh, and I, in the end, if you don't align the incentives, you're just going to be throwing the pizza back and forth. Wow. That is, that is depressing. <laughs> oh, it's, no, it, it is. It's very sad. Very interesting though. Very interesting because I have seen the phenomenon a lot that what kind of is old is new. You see, we saw that in like 2015 with private exchanges, how it was like, oh, this great new idea. And it's like, wait a minute, isn't this just like a, you know, kind of a, a big marketplace. People go in fully insured or whatever, sometimes self-funded and, and make choices. And it's like, oh, we did this before. And then you know, talking to people who've been in the industry for a while, it's like, oh yeah, this new idea, we tried that 15 years ago. This yeah, new idea, yeah. we tried that 20 years ago. Right. Like it's sort of recycling back through. And I, I haven't yet heard of the thrillers where you do sort of a prisoner's dilemma with the carriers in different yeah. rooms. I I'm think loving that, that. I think they're finally defunct. Uh, although I think my original company, a GE oh. was actually still doing them four or five years ago. When I switched uh, to Blackstone in 2010, by then the relationship between, uh, mm. you know, uh, suppliers and their customers had changed a lot to a much more cooperative model, which I think is a much smarter way to do business. But there was a time in an era uh, in the 90s and aughts uh, for, and it made sense at the time when this kind of aggressive management of, uh, of vendors was, was the way to do it. Wow. So now kind of sort of zooming in a little closer on this, if uh, let's talk about incentives, there's a million bad incentives that are in the system. How, you know, if you were to give us advice or a recipe on how 
a benefits manager might start to unpack those or target them kind of one by one where, you know, you've got easy squeeze and the most juice. What recommendations would you give and how do we start to fix these misaligned incentives? Yeah, look, on the most basic level, it goes back to who's your customer and what do they want? And there's a lot, there's a lot of good there, which is people want to be healthy. Uh, and in particular, people want their kids and their families to be healthy. And so kind of when you start at the kind of most basic level of what can I do to help this person stay healthy, your incentives are aligned. And so when you offer, uh, you know, kind of easy ways, it's now very digital, but it used to be fitness centers. And for a while, that was the reason that you had on-site clinics probably mm -hmm. still is, is, is convenience to keep you healthy. Um, when you, that huge kind of a wellness movement we had back 10 or 15 years ago when it took off, um, those were ways which you aligned your incentives. You kind of, they didn't cost the company much. I was never impressed with the studies, but it seemed common sense that employees would be more productive if they mm -hmm. could do those things. And you had a really nice opportunity. This is again, between employer and employee to align incentives that way. And the satisfaction surveys are tremendous uh, on those mm -hmm. things inside companies. It keeps employees more loyal mm -hmm. and keeps them, you know, kind of energized. It improves their morale. And that's a great mm -hmm. example, I think, of aligned incentives. Everyone wants to be healthy. I started doing some work directly with providers. Again, I am a provider, so it was a little easier mm -hmm. for me to understand providers because, you know, the vast, vast majority of providers, they they didn't choose medicine to make money. They could have gone to Wall Street for that. They right. care about patients and they want to do a good job. And mm -hmm. so employers, they want their they want good value for their dollar. They want their employers to be healthy. They want them to be also productive and providers also wanted their patients, you know, to do well. So there you had a certain alignment of incentives. We used to bring in all sorts of uh, physicians um, and local hospitals to do health fairs, you know, to give talks. I just was doing this as recently as a couple of years ago, you know, with COVID, COVID in pregnancy, you know, COVID in childbirth, et cetera, et cetera. And so you had a real alignment uh, there, particularly between providers and employers, which I still think mm. is cool. No, that's great. Are there ways to do it that are more procedural that aren't sort of grassroots or does it ultimately just mean, you know, getting your boots on and, and going to interact with providers? What do you mean? I'm not sure what you mean. Oh, like uh, plan designs or benefits. Yeah, well, let's talk about plan design. Direct contracting. Sure. How do we, I think how do the we best, you know, again, let's talk it. about something I said at the beginning, which is I do think that uh, the key to aligning incentives is to do a population health payment, you know, okay. where you basically say, here's a group of people, you know, mm -hmm. you say to the providers, now this is the devil's in the details about all this, either use an intermediary to do it, a health plan, or if you're large enough, in some cases, the employer or the purchaser can do it themselves. You know, you say, let's figure out a way, or let's figure out the number that it should cost this uh, group uh, how much would it cost this group to insure them or to provide care for them for a year? Um, and, you know, you can get really exact about that. I think the estimates of 30% waste are probably low still. I think the waste is wow. worse than it ever was. It's better in some ways. Wow. And I think computerization and digitization has helped. But the overuse of services and the lack of um, the lack of a... Uh, 
a uh, computerized health record that goes from system to system. It's still the case in this state that if you're treated by Hartford Health and then go to Yale, no one has any idea what anybody did in other than in small circumstances. Right. So the overuse is is magnificent. So you can basically say, look, here's how much the employee population cost last year and the environment says costs are going to go up 5%. Try and beat that and then put some incentives in and put a lot of quality measurements so that employees can be comfortable and you as the buying agent can be comfortable that the way that the uh, providers are saving money is not by scrimping on care. And you generally, if you can find a provider group or you know a group that can handle it and you can find the buyer, an employer who's willing to be patient enough, it works really, really well. The problem mm -hmm. is that two, those two ifs are so problematic that this is still the vast minority of payments. But when it works, it works very well. Because I can tell you as a provider, let me put my provider hand on, I'm married to a provider. And so yeah. I know how much this stuff still goes on. It really is not difficult to be able to kind of decrease utilization by 10 or 15%. Let's say I'm 30%. Yeah. I'm, 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 two times more uh you know there's more waste than it should be trust me the amount of cutting that in half and getting to 10 or 50 percent is an easy easy uh out in terms of the extra ultrasound you did the unnecessary stress test that was done the serial mrs that are done etc cetera, etc cetera. and again you measure quality to make sure that you're not scrimping or you're not rationing care and you put a customer service measure in it isn't just clinical quality it's employees were you and your families happy how good was kind of the the customer service did, did bills get paid on time did your questions get answered on times etc you have i think the model for healthcare i mean kaiser is an example and there are several others but it's a minority mm -hmm. that's a great point when you i think sometimes outside of even just kind of the programs or or kind of administration of the plan design, there are general business principles that get applied to other areas of the organization that for some reason, healthcare kind of gets a pass on those. And especially considering the organizations with whom you've worked, I know you've seen a lot of great business practices and have applied them. What do you think are some good business principles that are super common everywhere except healthcare that, that we might want to more actively add to our healthcare plan management? Yeah, look, I think it's it's a very good point again, because they're, you know, healthcare, it's 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 a gigantic sector. It's 20% of the economy. And and some things simply aren't business-like. Let me start by saying, and, and you know this, I mean, being able to you bring your kid into a pediatrician, you know, and and you really like the pediatrician and they examine the child for belly pain. And I don't know how you apply business principles to that interaction. Someone has terminal cancer on the other end and the relationship with the physician is so good, you know, mm -hmm. that I don't know how you apply business principles to that. But I would right. say that that is just a piece of healthcare. And that's the piece, I think, to your point that like has dictated the entire approach. And I don't think that's true at all. I think there's a lot to the business of healthcare where you apply business principles. I think the first one is the very simple one that you can't manage anything that you don't measure. And if I look at the number 
of sponsoring companies who kind of really don't understand their own data or they allow their brokers to kind of uh, organize their data for them or they listen to what the health plan says with their kind of you know mixed incentives uh, it, it's surprising uh, and so I see a, a lot of companies that really don't understand uh, their data and a lot of benefit managers aren't particularly trained in this and the relationship between the benefit managers and finance inside companies and remember GE at one point we had 16 separate companies when GE was thriving and at Blackstone uh, we had over a hundred companies in my equity healthcare business it was around 70 when I left um, it the it just is healthcare costs are seen as part of benefits which is seen as part of compensation and so you don't have finance people that really understand how to kind of dig into this data. We did at GE, we made sure that we did, and we did at Equity Healthcare, and it makes a gigantic difference. So you really mm -hmm. have an understanding of kind of how much you are spending on what, you have a budget for the year, and you understand where the variances are to the budget, and then you try and correct them. Um, I'll tell you another business approach, which is just the simple act of procurement. And so most companies either use consultants or brokers to do their procurement, and some are very, very good at it. But when I started um, uh, Equity Healthcare, one of the things we instituted was actually an RFP for brokers. Not a single of one of our companies had done one in the several years before they had joined Equity Healthcare. 90% of the companies change brokers. And again, it was a simple application of a business principle, which is you test the supply chain. And inside the employer world, the brokers have a lot of power. Remember, these benefit managers have a lot to do. You know, they are busy right. uh, with busy. a whole lot to do. You know, there's a lot of pressure on them never to have an unhappy employee, which I think is management's really mis. You know, that is an unfair metric to put on uh, benefit managers. Particularly, that's not how you'd run a health insurance company. Uh, and right. so they go to brokers, which is fine. And some brokers are very, very good. I can tell you that some aren't. And so one thing that just we became aware of early on was that that relationship, which was so crucial in the ecosystem, because the broker did the data and, and did the RFPs and presented everything to them. You know, they're responding to their own incentives you know, in all of the kind of commissions that they got. Right, and, and it's not a No RFPing of the brokers. Many of the benefit managers inherited them. Some of them wanted to do an RFP and their leaders wouldn't let them because there were relationships and, and why do we change, et cetera, et cetera. And so again, the simple principle of it's a market, test the market. It's, this is a lot of money. It can be measured. Let's measure it. And then let's hold our vendors accountable. So those are just some very basic mm. principles that kind of get lost, I think, under the fact that, geez, healthcare, it's emotional. Someone's got terminal cancer. I can't make a business out of that. Or I can't make anyone unhappy. Right. That's right. Man, I, I love that, especially around knowing your data. How many how many million dollar claims are paid off of like a, a one sheet summary that comes through and there's no didn't bother to look at the itemized bill or or no med records or anything else to substantiate it the uh, and and just uh, 
What about looking at providers as a supply chain? I know many will do this, although you have to be careful because in some areas, hey, only one hospital. It's not like you have much choice or you know, maybe there's just one primary care doctor in this particular town, that sort of thing. But did you ever approach it like that? And if so, oh, yeah, not? I mean, absolutely. Again, I, you know, one of the initiatives I started early on, and this came from my background uh, as a physician, the variation in physician performance and hospital performance is staggering. Uh, mm. you, know, you don't know that when you don't have a white coat on and you, et cetera, you have to really be an insider to, to understand that or a data person yeah. to, to understand that, but it really is staggering. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we used to, when I did labor negotiations, um, and we would have an egregious kind of medical group that was just overbilling. And, uh, you know, I would just say to the people I was looking, but the union loved them. And I would say to the people across the table, I said, you do know you know, what they call the person who graduates at the bottom of their medical school class, don't you? And the answer to which is doctor. Uh, making the point, you know, that there's variation uh, even among licensed physicians. So I think the providers are a supply chain. And I mm -hmm. think that I said early part of my career, again, you asked earlier, can you do things bigger than your own company? And part of it was measuring quality and measuring efficiency among physicians. And it was a huge initiative that uh, we and some other companies started. It was all part of the whole LeapFrog group, which I was a co-founder of yeah. in 2000. Part of the yeah. whole idea was to measure everything and make it available to the public and transparent to the public. And a lot mm -hmm. of it was getting the level to uh, the smallest group of physicians or whatever group you had that was responsible for a patient and, and measure it and the variation is staggering. And so our early analysis at GE, and we had great financial teams uh, at GE, this was in GE's prime. Uh, we could save about 15 or 20% of our healthcare costs if our employees went to the better performing physician, all risk adjusted and, you know, the best kind of, you know, kind of financial minds that you could find in healthcare, we could make a 20% difference just in terms of you know, the person who wasn't just finding someone who did better hip surgery, it was the fact that 20% of the hip surgeries could have been treated with physical therapy. Right. You know, that was what Walmart figured out brilliantly with that kind of right. thing that they did, which was, you know, and again, the higher performing physicians, you have to figure out how to, you know, compensate them and how to pay them for quality. Uh, and so I think the supply chain is a big deal. So there's two ways to get at it. One it, that doesn't work, um, in, if a health plan does it, is just get rid of the higher, the lower performing, higher cost hospital. Makes was, sense. You can't do that because if you know uh, patients, they're all in the network. No, employees are sensitive to that hospital, or the CEO or the C-suite is going to that place. You know, try getting rid of a banner. Uh, I don't mean the company banner. You know, a kind of high reputation hospital in the town. Yeah. So what you do is you tier them and you tier them into networks and you can say to employees, and we finally figured this out about 20 years ago, which is uh, employees hated managed care and HMOs because we were telling them what to do. Well, you don't tell an American what to do. You can no. say you have free choice, but it might cost you uh, differently. And they mm. seem to respond to that. Okay. So we would tier the hospitals and have kind of, you know, performance networks. And I think that is still an underused, really uh, strong tool. If you can find yeah. the capitated group 
which are very hard to find because it's hard to do. If you can find them, which is why Kaiser uh, outperforms, then that's great to do it as a whole. Otherwise, you take the network and you divide it into high performing and low performing. Let people go wherever they want, but it costs them more if they go to the lower performing. Why on earth is it that 99% of employers have three copay tiers with drugs, but with medical, go wherever you want? Yeah. Probably the so relationship. Probably 99% of employers, medical, go anywhere you want. But man, if you want to get the wrong brand of generic drug, like you have to pay way more and there's super sophisticated tiering. That... That seems like a major imbalance. Forget applying business principles from somewhere in the organization. Apply business principles from one side of your own organization to the other. And I agree uh, with that, Lee. And it works magnificently on the drug side. I remember when we first did that in the early aughts, again, for generic and brand drugs. Yeah. Uh, and we would fight. We had labor negotiations in. And we would just fight, you know, and generics were terrible. No, they weren't. And, you know, people, the company should pay for everything. And finally, we just said, look, we're not going to force you to take a generic, but we, the company, are only going to pay the generic. And if you want the brand, it's fine, but you're going to pay the, uh, the generic to brand difference. Oh. And we went from about 40% of people using generics to about 92% of people using generics oh. in about a half a year with very few complaints. Very wow. open appeals process in case someone said, I got a generic, didn't work. My rule was say, okay, let it go. Don't fight people. Sure. First of all, it's their healthcare and generics don't always work the same. That sure. was about 2% of the people who had switched to generics. And yeah. whether they didn't think they worked or whether they didn't, I didn't care. It was sure. their healthcare. Give them what they wanted. But most people didn't know the difference because generics work just as well in probably 98% of cases. Certain drugs we excluded, by the way, just for anyone medical who listens to this. There's certain drugs you can't do this for. There's certain right. hormonal drugs, there's certain thyroid replacement drugs, but we were very intelligent about looking at, and again, this is analysis and bringing business principles and stratifying to healthcare, saying, look, here's a class of about 50 drugs that there's too much variation. We're going to exclude them in the brand generic. And we're going to just right. go with the 90% of drugs where there's zero evidence that there's any difference between them. And even there, that's where we really got the 2%. And we said, fine, fine, we'll pay for the brand. Wow. I love Why that. Why they don't do that to providers, which is what you said, I agree yeah. with you. I think that to me is just kind of, uh, it brings noise. So what happens is employee A goes to the hospital they want to go to. And they didn't understand that they were going to have to pay more. You know, wow. it's either higher copay or it was out of network. And they didn't understand it and they complained. And this is where it's business leadership, I think, that really mm. uh, is, is, is the problem. It's one thing to say benefit managers be tough. That's not how that ecosystem works. It's benefit manager get fired or benefit manager right. don't get a, a promotion. You know, right. it's the leadership that has to be able to say, I'm running a health insurance company. I have experts. I have consultants. I have physicians who are telling me that this is the case. I have communicated as well as I can. I'll communicate. I'll really even forgive it the first time. 
you know, et cetera. I'll find ways like I would if I was running a company, a commercial company. Right. At the end of the day, I'm not going to pay, you know, a dollar fifty for something that I can get for a dollar. Right. If I'm a benefits manager and I'm excited to start applying some of these principles and practices, or I, you know, I want to try getting a few of these into market, what are ways that I can build kind of support internally, especially if my, you know, if my leadership is mostly just managing me on whether or not somebody complains? Well, I think you got a hard road. Uh, and I don't know if there's a solution that, to be honest, I think one thing that I have learned after all these years and all the data that I've sifted through and all my, you know, quantitative training, and I work for Jack Welch and Steve Schwartz, and these are numbers guys is healthcare is personal. And if you really want to get credibility in an organization, you serve people. And I don't know a single human being alive who thinks mm -hmm. that customer service is handled through a 1-800 number and warm transfers and VRUs, even though that's, you know, it saves a lot of money. But sure. the benefit managers I've seen be the most successful are actually incredibly well-liked in their organizations because they mm. solve people's problems personally. Wow. And it can be stressful, but they are called on anyway. And some employees are really difficult about it, but not all of them. The majority aren't. And so the personal touch of helping people with their individual issue, whether it's, I don't know who, what doctor to go to and helping find someone who can help them figure it out, or this bill isn't getting paid or my eligibility didn't work or whatever it is, kind of being there personally is important. I think the well wellness education aspect, important place to build credibility in an organization, meet consumers where they are. Most people who go to work aren't sick every day. You know, the chronic oh. care population in the country might be 20 or 30%. Among employees, it's probably 10 or 15%. Let's say it's 20. Four out of five people aren't sick all the time and they don't right. get episodically ill. That's generally something that happens much more frequently when you get older. So basically, where are they? They don't really care about the center of excellence for bone marrow transplantation because they don't have that and right. what they do care about is i am trying to get pregnant or i am pregnant and here's COVID, or you know i can't you know uh, figure out whether i'm supposed to walk through i'm a little overweight i mean would someone help explain weight programs to me would someone make it easier for me to get to the clinic when i'm sick do you understand what it's like having three kids and having a full-time job and having to you know, go, you know, wherever I have to drive to get to and then wait for the doctor. And so I think if you can meet people where they are, you know, not around healthcare costs, not around illness, just their day lives, you develop credibility. That helps you then when tougher benefits go in. But nothing will substitutely, I mean, I'm, you know, been doing this a long time. And so I can't, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's be as optimistic as I used to be or as hopeful, uh, but I think if you don't have the benefit manager doesn't have a HR leader with standing okay. in the organization. And that generally has to do with whether that HR leader who they're working for. And so it really does come from the top of these organizations. And I spent probably the last five years when I was running Equity Healthcare, which was up until last year. And the reason Equity Healthcare under Blackstone succeeded like it did, we ended up saving a billion dollars for all the companies, is because we had the ear of the CEO. Blackstone would buy these companies. We didn't force anyone to join Equity Healthcare. 
but they had to listen to me and my team. And we would make the business case that you talked about. And we would talk yeah. about the changes and we would be able to do that. We then got a champion. And then the benefit manager, honestly, would basically say, thank you, because this is something mm -hmm. I've been trying to tell them, but they won't listen to me because I'm the benefit right. manager in HR. My HR leader, there's nothing in it for them, you know, kind right. of do this. But because you own them, the, the business person and the CFO kind of listened. And now the stuff I wanted to do, I now have the backing. And so I don't know how do you leverage the, the uh, how a benefit manager can take on unhappy employees. The personal credibility will help. But at the end of the day, it comes from the top of the organization. Now, Equity Healthcare, you, you would have the ear of the CEOs of the organizations who had been, you know, had merged or been acquired by Blackstone, what percentage of the CEOs, when you shared, hey, you're running an insurance company, we need to empower your benefits team to be able to put some of these business principles into practice. You need to get your data and understand it. You need to stop taking so much advice from people who are sort of weaponized against you with their incentives. Did people respond to that message? How did they? How did yeah, they, it was uh... great. Now, remember, I had already survived Jack Welch for a long time. So <laughs> I had learned the skill of, you know, being able to healthcare. So you can get going down to so many rabbit holes and get so confused. Everyone's got a story and everything else. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first uh, deck I did with, uh, with Jack Welch. I got, I was, I don't know, really young. And I had just taken the big job working for him and I did what I thought was like a Nobel Prize winning, you know, 25 page two sided deck with etc. And oh, yeah. I handed it to him, you know, kind of in the conference with all the leadership. And this was when GE, some of the listeners won't have lived through this era, was like what Amazon was said, the number one company by far, like an Apple. And it right. was most admired in the world 10 years in a row. And this was the leader. And he picks up the, the deck and he throws it down and he goes, what are you giving me a blank and book? He says, put it down, look in my eyes and talk to me about healthcare. And so, uh, wow. I, remember, I remember my first thought when that happened was as soon as I get out of this meeting, I have to call my wife and tell her to not sell the house in Boston. Because this update is my resume. This <laughs> is, I'm going to get fired really quickly here uh, but what it taught me over time was how to talk simply about it it was really turned out to be in, in the world i lived in you know the world of employers turned to be really important and wow. so uh the uh, the ceos were you know a little reluctant here we were these kind of new york private equity firm coming in we bought their company yeah. they were i'm sure the Second, you know, um, you know, my colleagues would always say, geez, they were so happy to see us. And I would think, yeah, sure they were. You know, the yeah. second, I'm sure they woke up that morning going, oh my God, here they come from New York. This is the last thing in the world I want to do. And then, yeah. you know, they'd sit, there was always the five or 10 minutes of eye rolling. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you could talk simply about the fact that I could save 15% of your care costs and make your employers happier, uh, and the things that you're going to do are not going to hurt anyone's health. And I have never met an employee in my years working at GE who left the company because they didn't like the healthcare benefits. 
they left the company because they didn't like their boss. They weren't getting promoted. They didn't like their pay. They got a better offer, but they didn't right. leave the company because there was a performance network. Uh, right. And you could then, and we had a very detailed deck and we I never went in with more than about four or five ideas. First of which was a broker RFP. We broker had RFP. voluntary. We had yeah, 95% of them join us. And I think some join because they feel like, my God, I better. Uh, but we essentially, you know, had really high success. We saved them. They adopted about 90% of our recommendations. Um, and it worked out very well. It was applying sole business principles to these were mid-market companies. And it was great. It went really well. Wow. What were some of the other just kind of, hey, these are just, this is good grooming, right? Brush your teeth, tie your shoelaces. What were the kinds yeah, of things so the, that you The first one with? was do your broker RFP. The second was, wow. you know, part of joining Equity Healthcare is that, you know, you're going to be part of a data warehouse, which none of them had. These were big right. companies. You're going to be part of a data warehouse and we're going to create a budget with you. And we're going to sit wow. down and show you where your costs are. And we're going to kind of say, here you have a lot of pregnancies going to the more expensive hospital. You have a ton mm -hmm. of musculoskeletal back pain. And we're going to come up with solutions for these. And we're going to make sure we do this outperformance. A lot of it was benefit design. We always put in, uh, at that era when I started uh, 12 years ago, we put in a high deductible plan. We always offered choice. It was never okay. high deductible only, but we pegged it to the most efficient plan. So Makes here, sense. employee, this is what we're willing to pay. And we would say to the company, figure out your industry. You know, the broker would do that. Okay, well, everyone in our industry pays 80%. Fine, you're going to pay 80% of the most efficient plan. That's frequently high deductible. You're going to offer another plan or maybe two other plans, but the employees are going to pay the difference for the plan, mm -hmm. just like the generic brand drug and essentially that's what we want you to adopt and they would and that basically led most people to move down either from the highest tier to the middle or the middle to the most affordable tier Makes and sense. so that was kind of another principle uh that we did we had a special unit we had two vendors we happened to use united and Aetna, but they were you know kind of like what most large employers did they were our own units you know who kind of you know were right just but we added a concierge right. unit. And so we basically, yeah. what we did was say to United Edna, if you want to do business with us, we need real concierge service. So when someone calls in on the phone, we want them to be able to call that same person back. We want you to be able to call them back. And so we ended up with NPS scores, which are remarkable in the 80s at, at wow. both of those units. And so there were a list of four or five requirements. We did some stuff. They had to come into our pharma uh obviously you know our pbm RFP, but what we would ask out of our ppms was a lot when it came to how they handled new biologics etc so it was really four or five building blocks but again your point of simple business principles mm. executed the way that the company executed everything else in their business or they wouldn't have been a good business was enough to save about 15 percent of their health care costs and have happier employees Last question. If you were, if you were able to go back and give advice to, I guess, your, your younger self, what are some of the things that you'd share to get onto the right path to have the biggest impact 
you know, knowing all the things that worked and all the things that didn't over the past 30 years? Yeah. So I think the first I'd say is it's, I'm a huge believer in data and a huge believer in analysis. At the end of the day, healthcare is personal and you should never forget that. And the benefits manager is an important part of that chain for people who get sick in the process. So I think the personal aspect, I mean, it is nice to go to BRUs and, you know, digital healthcare companies and et cetera. And there's a population that really likes those. And some people will always like them, but 10% of your population or 15 or 20 is going to spend 80% of your costs and healthcare is extremely personal for them. And I just wouldn't forget that among all, all of the vendors. So I think that's the first thing I would say, despite hmm. all of my degrees and time spent in spreadsheets, it really is personal for people. I think that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is meet people where they are. It's a really, although the small proportion spends the most, people's lives are just like your lives. You know, right. they're busy. You worry about your kids. You know, you've got parents that are sick. And so the, you know, those that offer programs, how do I help take care of my child who might have a disability or my parents who are getting older, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are really impactful and wellness. You know, everyone in this country, not everyone, but a lot of people, you know, yeah. struggle with their weight. Yeah. And struggle with doing the right thing. And I think meeting people, I mean, I spent an early part of my career thinking that those things were too soft and right. that I just ought to go after the dollars at those high cost cases. Yeah. And so that's what I would tell my early self is now it's really personal. This stuff, even if it doesn't save money, is so meaningful to employees in their lives and the productivity uh, of those people at work and, and work matters to, to most people. That's what I think the biggest thing. And I would say, and the next thing, you know, that I would say is know your setting. And if you're in a setting where the CEO doesn't want to hear it and you're going to get punished uh, if you kind of do a move that makes people unhappy, that is a, uh, that is a rock probably too big to push too hard. Yeah. Wow. I wish more CEOs could hear this message because healthcare is so unique. The stakes are so high. The opportunity is so significant. I mean, we work so hard to save money by shaving a nickel off a lug nut in your supply chain yeah. or just getting down a little bit, your per click fees of printing capacity that over here within healthcare, sort of the one great impossible net income line item that is untractable. Wow. If somebody wants to, uh, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. I'm happy to talk to anyone if you want to. So best uh, email for me is rsgalvinmd uh, at gmail.com. rsgalvinmd at gmail.com. Wonderful. Bob Galvin, thank you well, so thanks. much for today's visit. And thanks uh, for uh, listening yeah. to me for so long. Oh, it's no, this is wonderful. Appreciate everyone listening in. Man, if this uh, impacted you or would be helpful to you or a colleague, please send today's episode to that person or people who could benefit from it. Uh, getting this message out is critical to, to saving lives and, and saving dollars. And uh, until next time, uh, I'm Lee Lewis with Broken Benefits. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. 
It's free to do, and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.